Hello and welcome to the Sense of Place podcast. Now in today's episode, I'm going to be talking to John Repian. John is a British writer with a strong interest in history, place and folklore. His work focuses in particular on comic books, many of which he's co-written with his wife, Leah Moore. However, in today's episode, I talked to John about a book he put together called Spirits of Place in collaboration with 12 other writers. Each essay within the book takes us on a journey, a tour of the places where the writers themselves have encountered the echoes of people, events and ideas which have become imprinted upon the landscape. So before we get into today's episode, I'm just going to give you a broad overview of some of the things me and John chat about today. Firstly, how places absorb memories, the way we process and perceive the world around us, the importance of the Calderstones and Calderstones Park itself to John, the place of ancient landmarks within the modern landscape, and just everything surrounding and to do with John's book Spirits of Place, which is a really, really excellent book. So, without further delay, let's crack on with today's episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Just to get things started first, I did want to talk about the differences between the phrases spirit of place and sense of place, because I think they can get confused. And I definitely say there's a strong link between the two, even an overlap. Yeah. I think for me, though, sense of place is our ability to grasp and appreciate distinct qualities of places through things like our sight, memory, imagination, hearing, and so on. Whereas I'd say, I think spirits of place has more of a focus on natural landmarks and maybe spectacular built forms. And these obviously tend to hark back to more sacred and spiritual times. You know, for example, in the past, maybe like forests, rivers, mountains, they would have been the home to a spirit of place that would have given identity to that place. Um, But I think, you know, what with society becoming overall less religious, I think these spirits of place has become, you know, now they begin to represent the identity of a place, but more through legend and myth rather than being the actual force behind it. So I did just want to know, what does the phrase spirits of place mean to you, John? And would you agree with my understanding of the term or do you feel it means and expresses something different? Um, No, I mean, I agree with that broadly. That makes sense to me. I think when I, you know, when I've started using that phrase to do with my own work and to do with the stuff that I've done, it was really that I was thinking about this idea of sort of stories and history and identities becoming embedded in places in a way that people seem able to pick up without really realizing that they're picking it up. So what you're saying about a sense of place is, is, um, a sense of place, I think, is more of a, a tangible thing. It's like you you understand something about that place. And I think the thing with spirits of place is sometimes it's more about um, a feeling or a, you know, like I say, these the something that I encountered years and years ago, which really I think has planted the seed of this idea, was years and years ago I researched a ghost book, a local history ghost book, and I ended up getting first-hand accounts from a load of people about these these different little ghostly encounters that they'd had and you know whether they you believe they're real or not is you know these people believed they were real so i just reported them as a matter of fact but one of the things that came up in it was a couple of different people said stuff about english civil war ghosts in this specific place in this little village in liverpool and it was independent from each other there were people who'd never spoken to each other and as far as i knew there was there was nothing written down about it. And after doing quite a bit of research, I managed to uncover 
some English Civil War stuff in that village, and I was positive that neither of the people involved knew anything about that history. I never knew anything about that history. And I'm not saying I literally believe that the ghosts of this English Civil War stuff were there, but, you know, definitely the memory of that stuff having happened is somehow tied to that location. And that's that was one of the key things that really made me think, you know, it, it it's incredible how you think that stories will die. You think that stories are things that need people to to keep them alive. And actually, it seems to me more like stories can, uh, you know, can exist on their own. And it's actually the landscape and physical places where they can, they can kind of hang around for us to remember them or find them again. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I think you can sort of sometimes feel memories trapped within walls, if you know what I mean. I think an example for me was when I went to, you know, Auschwitz, obviously, you can just almost feel, you know, the the pain, the tragedy, the hardships are just trapped within those walls. And some of the walls actually had scratch marks on them, which I found very haunting because imagining somebody so desperate just scratching at the walls just trying to get away from this awful awful yeah. place yeah yeah that's it yeah it, you know it can be a positive thing it can be a negative thing but it's a thing that you know uh, yeah i just think it kind of it soaks into the the earth or the 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 bricks and mortar kind of thing i think it's something that we're all aware of on some level as well you know there are places that you you don't like to go there are places that you do like to go and you can't really explain why they might not be you know particularly unpleasant looking or they might not be the most aesthetically pleasing but there's there's places that give you a feeling um and i think that people do you know even just planning their their walk to work and things like that i think people are doing this unconsciously all the time yeah you kind of you can't really pinpoint it can you it's just the sense in you you know you just feel something about that place don't you for sure yeah I mean, I did want to ask you, actually, do you think that it's common for children to have a strong sense of this without realising it? Because obviously I know in the start of your book you do discuss that childhood experience of walking to your grands over the same patch of grass time and time again, and then you sort of see multiple versions of yourself walking over it throughout your life. So do you think children maybe have that sense more and we lose it as we become adults? Or I think so, yeah. I think that, I don't know whether they, you know, it's like any of these things about you know, I don't want to sort of talk about the innocence of children or anything like that, but I've got three kids myself and they're far from innocent. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's just about, you know, how they can perceive these things raw and unfiltered, I think. I think we tend to, you know, we put a lot of blockers on things. I live basically in the same place that I grew up. I live not very far away. So a lot of the places I take my kids, the, the parks and stuff around here are the same places that I went to when I was a kid. and. I can see that they appreciate them for the same reasons that I appreciated them when I was yeah. a kid, you know, and that's, um, it's not something I would ever be able to explain. It's not something I would ever be able to say, oh, you know, I know you specifically like this park because, you know, there's this brilliance, you know, there's loads of old buildings and all that kind of thing, but it's weird to see how they experience it now. And I can remember experiencing it that way. But yeah, as an adult, I don't think you can, you can ever truly get back to that kind of raw state. You know, it's something I aspire to do. It's something I try to do, but um, it's it's just the the raw unfilteredness of being a kid, isn't it? I think you kind of 
try and put a meaning to it when you're an adult because when I read that thing about you walking over the patch of grass I really related to that because when I was a kid I've had a similar feeling I remember funnily enough being at my grandma's house and I was just thinking of everything that's happened here you know my mum growing up they were kids and you just think of that cycle of life and again I was really young and you think where did that even come from like why was I thinking that when I'm like six or something yeah but I was and obviously as an adult now on reflection I thought maybe was that influenced by my dad because he always used to tell me stories of when you know about when he was younger or he was a teen and maybe that sparked that fascination in me me with like the past and stuff but it's still there was just that weird sense and I I don't really know where it came from if it was from that or just like you say with children you just see and you take you don't try and explain things you just let them be yeah and I think it's you know I think it's a very again it's it's a sort of it's a natural way of processing that information I think when you were a kid and I think as a as a writer myself and um because I, I do comics a lot so i have to do a lot of visual stuff and i know that most of my visual vocabulary i'm stealing from other things that i've seen it's a lot of film it's a lot of television it's a lot of other comics um i can always or i can usually relate what i'm coming up with to other things i can i can see where i'm getting my ideas from or whatever and i think when you're a kid especially when it's something as profound as that where you actually suddenly realize about, you know, history and time stretching out around you. I think that it's brilliant not to have a way to process it. It's brilliant not to have some idea about how you might contextualize that. And I think that the thing that's happened to me and to you um, is the natural result of that, is the way that your brain, how it would process that data if it didn't like have the you know try and do it as like a soap opera kind of montage or something you (laughs) know i I really you know it's weird because i I enjoy input i enjoy books and i enjoy films and everything but i also sometimes think it's a shame that you have to you, you build up this this vocabulary from all these other things but then it becomes a way of processing stuff you know like when you get confused when when i get confused I think about how a computer works now. I think, you know, oh, I need to mentally press control, alt, delete, you know, and you use these, these similes of, of the, these other things, you use that as a way of processing your own information. But sometimes I think it'd be amazing to just know how your brain would process that stuff, how you would see these things if you didn't have these other ideas in there. Also, uh, that's another thing when I was young, you know, like when you get deja vu, Yeah, that was one of those things too, which I used to, I thought I was like the only person that got deja vu, you know, you think you're having some weird. Yeah. And when you discover there's a word for it is amazing because you think, yeah, no, it is, you know, it, it's just, um, and, and partly that might be because, you know, your days are sort of so similar when you're a kid, maybe, or, you know, maybe it's like that you're, you know, you know, to use it, uh, again, I have to use the computer kind of language, but like that you're overwriting data. So maybe that's one reason for it, but you know, even as an adult now, when I have it, I still don't understand it. You know, you still have those couple of seconds where you think, oh, you know, all, all this stuff has already happened before. And it, it, it's a, a weird experience and a sort of, you know, an interesting experience. I suffer with the thing, if I get a very bad cough, I've, I've had a bit of a cough recently. Uh, and I, I suffer with a thing called cough syncope where um, 
it, it cuts off the oxygen to my brain for a second. Oh God. It's like, it's not dangerous or anything. It's just like, I feel like I'm going to pass out. I only, I've only had it a few years and I had to go to the doctor with it the first time. But the first time that happened was cr- around Christmas one year and we had our Christmas tree set up in the hall and I knew I had this bad cough and I went and went out into the hall and I did this big cough. And then for a second, I thought, I went, oh, what's that big green thing there? What's it doing in the hall? And then I thought, oh, can it, can it move? And then my, my, my head recovered and I thought, oh, that's the Christmas tree. And then I, but like, I thought, why did I think that? And then that was when I had to go to the doctor. But having had that experience, you know, that was like, it's weirdly like the deja vu thing where just for a second, the all, all the sort of time and space around you is completely messed up and your brain has to kind of just start anew and start to make sense of everything so it's kind of frightening and amazing at the same time isn't it when you think yeah I've also had moments of deja vu where I've been in the deja vu thinking I'm having deja vu <laughs> like you like when it sometimes it can go on a little while and you think oh this is weird I'm aware of my deja vu and that is deja vu too so yeah, no, it's it's interesting, all these weird things. And I, I think in some ways, when I did find out the word deja vu, like you say, it's like, God, there's actually a name for this and other people experience it. Because honestly, when I was a kid, I thought that this was some weird thing that I, only I had. You think it's some sort of weird power or something you're predicting or you've seen what's happened before. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so I did want to get onto the book now. And I know that the inspiration of the book came from an event you held in Liverpool called Spirits of Place. And I was just wondering if you could tell us about that event and what led you to hold it in the first place. Yeah. Well, basically, there's, like I say, where I live is is pretty much where I grew up as a kid. So I'm very familiar with all the parks and the sort of green spaces. I'm really lucky to live in a, a very green bit of Liverpool this there's kind of a little island of green around this bit where I live where there's a, I live next to like three or four parks and all these sort of just spaces that aren't being developed uh, amazingly and one of those spaces is Calderstones Park which is next to Calderstone School which is where my wife went to school and it's where Clive Barker went to school and also where Doug Bradley who played Pinhead in the Hellraiser films went to school it's an interesting fact for you there. <laughs> yeah. um, but Calderstone School and Calderstones Park are named after the Calderstones which are the remains of a Neolithic tomb in Liverpool and not many people know about it so there's the the Neolithic tombs over in uh, in um, Wales and then there's the Neolithic tombs there's Noth over in Ireland I won't try and say the names of the Welsh ones because I'll get them really badly wrong but the Calderstones are the remains of a passage grave basically they're not very good remains they're just big stones there's not much left of them um, and in fact they're in London at the moment because they're being cleaned and preserved I saw them get taken off last year but they've been there. The passage grave was just outside the gates of where the park is, and the park's been there for hundreds of years. So basically, the the stones hadn't moved for you know we're talking five or six thousand years, really very far. And it's been a thing that's always fascinated me because they've got all these carvings on them. They've got hands and feet carved on them. They've got these spirals carved on them, and they were kept in this little basically what was a greenhouse for uh, as far as I knew them, like for my whole life. I'm very 
under-publicized, very like unknown. So Calderstones Park is a place where I went when I was a kid and I would take my kids. And there's a mansion house there, which again is being renovated now. And I saw that basically you could you could hire it as a, a space to have conferences or things. And for some reason, I just sort of knew that I had to do an event there. So I ended up organizing this event. And the idea was it, that was called Spirits of Place. And it was about the Calder Stones. It was about the park, but it was kind of, um, the idea was that you could take that as your jumping off point and then you could talk about anything to do with sort of location and stories and history and all the rest of it. So I had people like David Southwell, who does the Hookland. He's he's the, the person who started all the Hookland stuff. Um, I had Cat Vincent, who is a former combat magician. That was actually his job at one time. He used to hire himself out as somebody to um, go and investigate places, but also to actually like deal with stuff. So I... So all these different people came and spoke about the Calderstones and the park and all sorts of relationships between themselves, between historical things and those, the stones or the park. And um, yeah, and it was really successful, much to my surprise. I think more people are interested in that kind of thing than you think, actually, because it is fascinating. I have to say as well, I haven't, I haven't actually heard of those stones myself. Like you said, I think they mustn't be very well known, like you never sort of hear about them no no never hear about them at all you know and it's you know hidden history is the thing that i i sort of i end up calling this stuff is the stuff that i've always been fascinated by the other the other thing that i used to i I would go there as a kid and another place i used to visit as a kid um is the village of hale which is in the opposite direction not very far away and there's a giant's grave there in the graveyard which it says on his grave here lies john middleton nine feet three inches and so there's a whole historical story about John Middleton, the child of Hale, as he was known. There's stuff in Samuel Pepys's diary about him going and seeing a handprint of the child of Hale in Brasenose College in Oxford. So like it's this mad, it's a well-documented historical giant just in a normal, you know, a kind of normal little parish graveyard with all these other graves and one of them is just a giant's grave. And so that's the stuff that's always fascinated me is that you, um, like the Calder Stones, there's another stone not very far from my house, which is on the corner of a road. It's called the Archer Stone because they used to think that the marks on it were made by people sharpening arrows. And that got moved when they built a housing estate. So they put it on the corner of a road and they built railings around it. So it, it's the, again, it's this, like, it's a megalith. It's, it's, neolithic got neolithic carvings on it nobody pays it any attention at all you know everybody just walks past it and i almost love that more than if everybody was really impressed by it i love the idea of this stuff being part of our everyday life and um not being ignored but being accepted uh you know i think there's something really magical about people being like very blasé about a giant's grave or a, a passage grave or you know megaliths just on the corner of the on the corner of the road i think it, it's cool to live in a world where we accept all of that it, it feels like some sort of alternate you know universe world building thing where like oh it's the same as here but there's all this mad magical stuff littered around and nobody's bothered i have to agree with you there because i think you know when really amazing places get super overhyped with tourists it takes that magic away from it it just doesn't have that sort of feel about it it's like everyone's 
just obsessively gathering around it, trying to get a selfie with it or something. You know, it's, it just doesn't become part of the landscape. It becomes this big thing everyone makes a deal out of. I mean, Stonehenge is the perfect example of that, isn't it? It's so overhyped with tourists. And I think I've preferred when I've been to see other ancient monuments that aren't, that are just left alone, you know, and not made a big thing out of. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, we, one of the people who I had, one of the speakers I had at the event is, um, Kenny Brophy or Dr. Kenneth Brophy to give him his proper title. And he's, he's the, he, he goes by the name of the urban prehistorian. He works up in Scotland. And the thing is up in Scotland, there's so many more standing stones. There's so many more stone circles and all the rest of it, but there's also a lot of them in urban and suburban areas. Again, like this one is the Archer stone is here, which have just got railings around them now. Um, and one of the things Kenny does is he documents these. Some of them are uh, you know, I've got graffiti on them. Some of them are in just areas where people go and sit on top of them and that's where they sit and drink a can of tenant super or whatever they're drinking. But the thing is, Kenny's always saying like the thing about that is people are interacting with it and using it. You know, it's not this sterile kind of untouchable, unknowable thing. They're part of the landscape. They're part of the the locality they're things that people know and use as landmarks and as places to sit and places to do stuff and as much as they might not be being treated as sacred objects or whatever they're they're being used and being experienced first and then i think you know there's there's a good argument for that it makes a lot of sense to me yeah i mean it, it almost is better if they're being used isn't it than just cordoned off or nothing at all. I think when I went to Greece, I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong. I think it's Thessaloniki or something. My, my friend Alex lives there and we went there and basically it's a similar thing. They got, so, I, I was kind of surprised. They have so much ancient stuff that they can't preserve it all. They can't display it all in museums. So you just walk around and they've got these ancient ruins just in the street. And like you say, they've sort of become a part of people have graffitied on them or they haven't got signs. They're just there. And I kind of like that mix of landscape in all honesty, the new and the old combined. Yeah. And it's, it's funny as well. It's like, I think sometimes I wonder whether it boils down to whether a thing belongs to you and belongs to the place or whether it's something that's other, you know, whether it's something imported or something from a sort of unknown past. Because there's a thing in Manchester, obviously there's the Roman ruins in Manchester, but if you go to Manchester Museum, again, a good place to take me kids, then you go into the sort of the antiquities bit of Manchester Museum. There's all this amazing stuff behind glass and there's loads of things that they, you know, that have been uncovered in Manchester and around Manchester. And there's one of these little altars, which I think is one of the, the genius loci, one of the spirits of place altars, one of these little local altars that they would have to the sort of the guardian spirit of a specific place and your instinct is to reach out and sort of touch these things and bizarrely you can just reach out and touch this it's um it looks like it's going to be behind glass but there's there's no front on it and it's always intrigued me that but i've always assumed that that is because the job of the museum is to preserve all this amazing stuff but that is something that is so, you know, that's ours. It's properly ours. So it's all right. You can have a touch of that. You don't want to have a touch of it. As soon as you touch it, you think, oh, you know, it's, you know, it's 2000 years old. I shouldn't be touching it. But there's just something about that. You've been invited to interact with that because it's something that actually belongs there somehow. And I think that's, you know, that's the attitudes that across, you know, all the amazing megalithic monuments in France, you know, that you're just sort of allowed to kind of climb on and get under and all the rest of it. And I think on the one hand, it's, you know, it'd be too difficult 
to preserve them and have people sort of watching them 24-7. But it's also like, well, that's just part of the landscape. That's part of this. It's, you know, stuff is going to happen to it. You, it. It's up to you not to just kind of wreck it. Yeah. How do you feel about in terms of letting things just naturally decay? Because you know some people are very much like, we need to preserve this. It's really important. How do you feel about just let it be when it rots away or gets broken by everybody clambering on it? Do you think that's a better take on sort of ancient monuments rather than trying to put them in a museum um well i mean now i'm I'm, this makes me think specifically of the calder stones and what's happening to them now basically the harm that was done to the calder stones they were very very dirty they'd they'd been out in the open for you know for thousands of years they had all sorts of soot on them and everything and then i think it was the 1950s 1940s 1950s somebody took molds of them to try and get the to get the impressions of all the the carvings on them and when they did that they stripped off all the the dirt off them but they also took off the top layer of them because they're sandstone because that's the the stone that we have here in in liverpool so they got really badly by an attempt to preserve them now after that like they're being sorted now like i say they're being laser scanned and stuff and they are gonna when they come back to the park they're gonna be in sort of a a bit more of a a controlled environment they're gonna be in a specially built box and stuff i think that that's good because we've already lost so much but we've all we've we've only already lost so much because they tried to preserve them in a weird way it's kind of ironic really yeah yeah if they'd have left them alone they'd have probably been in a better state but you know we wouldn't know so much about them I love the idea of these things being being left in their original position and in their original situation as much as possible, definitely. But I think that there probably there does come a time when, you know, if things are going to be completely lost. Mm. The thing is, the Calder Stones weren't in their original position anyway. They'd already been moved around. They were arranged into a, a stone circle because that's what people thought that standing stones were supposed to be. So they'd already been messed with so much that I think it, that's fair game. If you've got stones that have been in their correct position for actually thousands of years, then my instinct would be definitely to leave them there, even if they're being weathered or you know cows are, are rubbing them to death, as is one <laughs> yeah. of the weird problems of the, with them. I'd like to see things left in their natural state as much as possible, I think. Yeah, I think it does depend on the actual thing, more or less, on kind of what you want to do with it. Because I think some are probably better left, whereas others, I mean, like you say, with the stones, you know, they kind of got damaged. You don't want them to get damaged anymore. So I don't think everything should be, in my opinion, preserved to that level. But some things I think it is very important because they like you say even just in sort of finding out more about them that's part of it it's really interesting and i mean some of the things you know you say about stonehenge and we talk about like noth over in ireland and i'll i'll try and say one of the welsh ones bryn selly do uh, or bryn kelly do i don't know which one's right you know these the passage graves which are these amazing things now most of those are actually reconstructed or slightly reconstructed and you know stonehenge is reconstructed people don't realize that they have rearranged Stonehenge a bit and stood bits up but you're not supposed to say that like people don't want you to say that or talk about that because they feel like that's going to ruin the the magic and the the mystique of it people want to be visiting these completely pristine and preserved untouched spaces but it's like those two things don't match up if you want it to be a lovely shiny tourist attraction that you've got to get people in and out of then you're going to have to make some adjustments and, and you know, <laughs> got to be slightly sanitized kind of thing. And I, 
I think that's okay. I th- as long as you you're honest about it and be clear that you don't know why the stuff was there the way it was anyway. So you think that you've done an all right job of putting it back in this slightly different configuration. You know, I think that's okay. Yeah, I think the original reason they got cornered off actually was because people were chipping away and taking bits of the stones. That's right, yeah, yeah. Now, I did want to go on to ask what the book is about and if you could give us an example of an essay. The reason the book came about basically was because Daily Grail Publishing said to me, would you like to, could you turn the event, because the event had been successful, into a book? And I said, not really, because the whole point of the event was it was about being there on the day in this one specific place. So I had to come up with a way of opening that idea out So I sort of thought I could say to people, you know, oh, if you were talking about a specific place, if you talked about how the history, the stories and the feelings that you got from a certain place, what would you write about? And then I realized that if I did that, I was kind of accidentally or I might accidentally end up with a a psychogeography book, which is weird that I try not to use in the context of all this stuff. Not because I've, you know, I've got anything specific against it, but because I think that psychogeography to a lot of people means very specific things. It generally means old white men talking about London. Don't think that that has to be the case, but I just thought, what I'll do is I'll make sure that it isn't that. I'll try and open it out as much as I can, and I will try and get as many different voices, as many different people from as many different countries as I can, talking about what Spirits of Place means to them. So, I mean, it was a pretty broad kind of brief that I was giving to people. I was just saying how stories become embedded within the landscape, how we relate to the landscape, and even, you know, what is the landscape. So, I was really lucky enough to get Ian Sinclair involved. Ian Sinclair was one of the first people who I approached about it because I thought he'd be fantastic. And the I, psychogeography king. <laughs> the psychogeography king who's, who always writes about London. So I said, exactly, to, yeah. I said to him, you know, I really want you to do this, but I really want you to not write about London if that's okay. And it was, it was okay. And based on getting Ian, then I was able to, ask Alan Moore to do it. Alan Moore is actually my father-in-law. So I could have asked him first, but I didn't want to just go like, oh, I'm doing this book. Will you do it? And I know how much of a, a friend and admirer of Ian's Alan is. So I thought if I get Ian first, then I'll say he's doing it and then Alan will want to do it. And then I had to say to Alan, you can't write about London and you can't write about Northampton because that's where he always writes about. So I thought that once I had them on board, I could kind of really open it out and and I managed to sort of get in it was a lot of these the people who I end up speaking to were sort of through friend of a friend and there were some things I wanted to include there were sort of place some places and topics I wanted to include but rather than put those two people I tried to find people who would be able to write about those things who would be interested in those things and I think you know I'll absolutely I'm so proud of the book I'm really really pleased with it the one that springs to mind as one that I was amazed to get away with kind of pull off was the Icelandic one. It was purely because I wanted somebody to write about, you know, the the hidden folk in Iceland, this whole idea that they will change where they're going to build their roads based on their being what we would call fairies or elves living in these places. Um, uh, and through 
being in comics years and years ago, my wife and I, we met a fantastic Icelandic cartoonist who's called Hulika Darkson. So he's my only person who I know in the whole of Iceland, basically. And I, I had to get in touch with him and say, is there anybody you could, you know, who'd be good for this book? So he put me in touch with, I'll probably say her name wrong, Brundis Bjorgen's daughter. And she wrote this amazing piece called Becoming Elf, Becoming Witch. What what it's about is, is about the hidden folk and it's about the, the way that Icelandic people interact with the landscape and their beliefs. But the I think what came across in the essay more than anything is, it's very hard to put into words what they actually believe and what they think. And in the essay, she's talking about Japanese television company come over and they've got her kind of draping herself over this stone, which is supposed to be one of the... Um, the places where the hidden folk live. And they've got a kind of vaguely pretending to be an elf or something herself, because, you know, this is another culture, you know, two different cultures trying to understand and experience each other. But they're trying to, you know, we're trying to simplify what the Icelandic people believe about place and about elves and fairies, because we can only speak about it in our own language and contextualize it within our own sort of frame of reference and the japanese exactly the same can only do that even though the japanese have got kadama which are these kind of they've got a spirits of place idea but there's this brilliant you know this weird interplay happening where they can't get their heads around the fact that you know this television company anyway can't get their heads around the fact that the icelandic belief might be the same as the kadama belief they, to them this is they're in fairyland. This is this weird, Iceland is this weird country where people genuinely believe in fairies. And, you know, the hidden folk stuff is so much more complicated than can even be explained in the essay. But it's just fascinating to get a first-hand account of what comes across is that, like, she's almost like, well, I don't really know what any of this means. We just know this is how it works. This is how stuff works. And we've always done it this way, you know, so nothing sort of typifies the idea of spirits of place more. I don't think than, you know, a whole nation who will actually change the, the, the route of a road or things like that. And they're not being ridiculous and superstitious. And it's not this twee kind of Enid Blyton kind of fairy thing that we all want to think of it as it's just a sort of practical respect of the landscape that comes from a gut feeling more than it comes from anything else yeah i have to say that was actually my favorite one in the book i really like that one my second favorite was actually the one where the guy who talked about the virtual world oh yeah mark mark pess yeah. or mark peace again I'll, I'll pronounce everybody's names wrong yeah that's a that's really good because that's talking about it's talking about landscape in a, in a 21st century way it's talking about how we can the world of the internet and the virtual world is still this place where, you know, it, it has its own history, it has its own feelings, it has its own places, and, you know, you don't think about that. Something that I really wanted, you know, one of the many essays that I, I wanted to be in there, which fell through, I was going to have somebody who was going to write about the spirits of place in video games and basically uh, somebody who was a gamer and who had been a games journalist for years and years and talking about revisiting places that they'd been to in old games and about how that actually playing these games again and remembering the landscape remembering the map 
and having those feelings and how those feelings could sort of transport you back to the last time you were playing the game. And I thought that was a really interesting. Oh, that that sounds like a really good one, actually. That's a shame that fell yeah, through. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, I love the Icelandic one just because it was just so interesting. Like you say, how they sort of build around these elves' homes and stuff. And also with the virtual reality one, that's something that yeah you you don't really think about every day but when when I read it I was like this is so true it is like another world we've got to that point now there's a virtual world that we sort of think about so yeah the video game one that that too I mean if you go back to something it does sort of bring back all these memories you remember like the landscapes of them in your your mind you know just as you would in real life you get to know the area in that so yeah, and I mean the other thing with the book, you know, um, I'm deliberately was trying to get different voices, people from different countries, and all the rest of it. But one, another one of my favourites. I mean, they're all my favourites. But um, was Agonies and Enchantments, Christine Ong Muslims one because that's about her growing up in Malaysia and about her family running a little family shop. And basically, what what it boils down to is very relatable very i don't want to say like mundane it's not mundane but very relatable experiences of the funny little hauntings that a lot of us do experience in everyday life the little glimpses of ghosts and of weird things and i love that essay because as much as i've gone to the trouble no real trouble for me just emailing people to be honest it's not like i've had to go traveling around you know but as much as i've tried to get this kind of more of a global book all these different voices you know her story it wouldn't have mattered if she was in sort of oldham or she was in glasgow or it was it was such a relatable normal story it was the story of her growing up as a kid and about how when you're a kid you see weird things sometimes you was that the one about her grandmother and also when she started her time of the month was it that one or i might be remembering it wrong um yes i think so yes that's right yeah so she's getting well it's it's coming through that threshold isn't it it's that you know i often say this the the most magical time i can remember is being on the the cusp of childhood and adulthood because you kind of you see the potential dangers and pitfalls of adulthood. You see the responsibilities and everything, but they make no sense. You still interpret them as a child. And I think that's the weird time when magic seems most real, when everything seems so weird. And, you know, again, when when these places that might have been places you um, visited as a child, when they take on this, this other context kind of thing. I can remember from where I went to school, we used to sometimes walk home along the train tracks, along the edge of the train tracks, back to the train station that was near my mum's house. And one time we saw a dog lying down near the train tracks. And so somebody went over to the dog. Now, I can't remember whether I was there and saw this or whether somebody just told me. Somebody went over to see if the dog was all right and sort of moved the dog with their foot. And when the dog rolled over, there was only half half the dog left because obviously the dog must have been hit by a train and then died next to the railway track. And where it had been lying on the ground, it had been eaten away back to a skeleton, more or less. And that is as much as, like I say, I can't remember whether I really saw it or whether somebody told me it, but that's one of those things where I, I think of that as a moment where you've got the kind of childhood wonder of 
skipping home from school not that i would have been skipping, but, <laughs> yeah. um you know sort of having this kind of oh oh and then you go oh look a dog is the dog all right and then the dog isn't all right it's an actual picture of you know horror and you sort of yeah, half think, a skeleton yeah nothing kind of sums up the kind of the meeting of you know childhood and adulthood and the meaning of adolescence to me rather than oh actually it's it's only half a dog yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah no definitely you know the essays when you sort of got these people did you pitch a particular style to them or did you just let them sort of have free reign to do what they like because I sort of found when I read them they although they had their individual style on them they almost all had quite a similar structure yeah no I mean I didn't I wasn't very rigid about how I was uh, what I asked people to do it was more about I was saying to them try and make it as personal as possible so try and make it a sort of a personal journey and I think because of that in fact, Mark's the, the one about the, the virtual world that you mentioned. I think that's one of the few pieces that I remember going back to and saying, because I can remember saying to Mark, this is brilliant. It's fantastic what you've written. Is there a way of you making this more personal to you, making it more about you? And I think initially he was like, you know, I, I don't don't understand how it could be more personal to me. But when he came back with his second draft of it, it made so much more sense so I don't think I managed to sort of guide people as I was getting the essays in but I mean basically I've been <laughs> I was lucky that they do all kind of coalesce into this one thing but I I really feel like they do I really feel like everybody is talking about the same stuff and that's something that I found interesting and that's why I wondered if you like pitched a style to them because it's interesting how all these people from all over they end up having although they're different experiences it's sort of the same basis their experience if you know what I mean the spirit of place I suppose the the one that Mark wrote was I thought the most different even in how it was written but I, I mean it still had the same sort of thing going with the others but I feel like the other ones they all sort of they referred to their childhood there was something frightening that happened that kind of thing and then as they sort of grew up that seemed to be the sort of theme that if they followed yeah yeah yeah, and uh, that, like I say, that just that just happened naturally. They just fell into that. I suppose the thing with with Mark's pieces, he didn't, you know, give it kind of ten years. And there will be people who can talk about their childhood online, but obviously, you know, Mark's got that entry point of when online begins to exist, so he can only go back so far. I guess that's why there's the difference. I hadn't really thought about that, but yeah, maybe that's why I, I've ended up saying to him, try and make this more about you because everybody else has sort of gone back into their deep, dark past and there isn't a sort of deep, dark past of the internet kind of thing. Yeah, so it would be interesting to hear, like I say, in, in 10 years' time, some writers' experiences of kind of growing up with the internet the whole time, it being a constant part of their life. Yeah, I think that'll be interesting. Also, I don't know whether that whole virtual reality, you know, where you can play games and wear those things on your head, whether that might change things, alter your memories in some way, because you'll you'll probably dream about things like that, I would think, you know, if you're seeing stuff like that, that close up. Yeah, I mean, you know, the augmented reality stuff like, you know, Pokemon Go, my kids love Pokemon Go and will we'll play Pokemon Go walking around. But that's, you know, that's another point, isn't it? They might see... Well, I know for a fact there's a church not not far from my house, and every time we walk past it, one of the kids says to me, "That's a Pokemon gym, you know," because that's one of the places where they create these these kind of anchors in physical places where stuff happens. So that's a gym where you can go and battle of the Pokemon, you know. 
And obviously that's not a thing that exists in the real world, but it's the first thing they think when they see this building. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, there's there's going to be people forming these these strange attachments to physical objects that have got nothing to do with the the real place. And I guess, you know, as this goes on further with augmented reality and people being able to kind of tailor the reality that they're seeing, you know, when you look in your phone and do the kind of Facebook cam thing and suddenly everything's all got hearts around it or you've got like dog's ears or anything like that. I guess that, you know, in the future, people will be able to tailor literally how they're, when they're walking down the road, what everything looks like. So it's strange, isn't it? Strange to think. Yeah, no, it is. I think Black Mirror will become a reality. (laughs) Have you watched it at all? Do you know what? I I, I don't watch Black Mirror, strangely, even though it should be my kind of thing. And I think the reason why I don't watch it is because I find even just the premise of it too close to the truth. (laughs) I just find that whenever anybody says anything about it, I'm always like, you know, they're like, oh, and it was so weird because this. And I always think that doesn't, you know, that sounds deadly serious to me. I don't want to, don't want to be putting that inside my head. That's going to be happening soon. So yeah, I'm kind of, I don't want to be terrified of technology any more than I already am, I think. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. I think that's why it's so good. You, It's kind of one of those shows you can only watch one episode at a time because afterwards you're just like, oh my God, <laughs> the world, what's it coming to? Because he just really gets that we're so near to this it could be within a few years you know so and they did just have that recent one where he made the episode interactive which was I thought that was interesting actually it was you know you've not really had a tv show like that where you can select options and stuff so no and it's amazing that you haven't really you know it's amazing with Netflix and everything although you know as as both you and I have I've already said then uh, we we both suffer with really bad broadband and everything so that's another thing that makes me think everybody's like oh it'd be really easy to do this in Netflix and I think oh god if I pause Netflix then it usually goes off so I doubt I'd be able to flick through all the different options with any any ease at all yeah i think i did prefer the sort of original premise of black mirror but i mean i i really liked this i thought it was just the fact that they even came up with something so complex was good because I know a lot of people actually slated it and I thought wow you know this is new like it's still a really great idea it's a new way of using the interactiveness of being able to pick your own your own programs and us having it all on demand and that makes sense but again you know the choose your own adventure thing you know of the multiple option thing I uh, for a long time I've thought that it's mad that that's so underused physically you know, not in, not specifically in a kind of digital way, or it could be a thing that you have on your phone or whatever. But you know, people enjoy a walking tour. People enjoy kind of going off and you know, map reading or whatever. And I always think it'd be great if you had, if more guidebooks were kind of literally choose your own adventure things. If you could actually go like, you've just come to this road, you can turn left or right, and you you could follow that through in a book or in an app and you know get the information as you were going along i'm still thinking i think you've literally made yourself another book here (laughs) with that idea that is actually a really good idea the other thing i've I've thought for ages is about the phone boxes is like how there's still all these phone boxes everywhere that are you know pretty much unused and i thought you could probably do the same sort of thing with phone boxes if you checked in via phone boxes there's probably i assume there's like you know software that would sort out where you are so you could ring up a number from the phone box and it could say to you right you can go this way or you can go that way i don't know maybe that's a bit more um you know i'm creating some kind of manchurian candidate (laughs) yeah i'm worrying now because you've said about black mirror you see i'm thinking about the possible 
terrible applications of all of this. People will say, <laughs> "Someone you pick up the phone well, they'll and they say, say I was, like, you're going to die tonight.' <laughs> Somebody hacks yeah, I've through. been doing that thing with the phones, and it sent me here, and they'll say that those phones don't work anymore." <laughs> It's funny you mentioned the phone boxes as well, though, because I was I was reading this article the other day, which was uh, like a photographer starting to take pictures of phone boxes and document them, because obviously, like that, no one even uses them anymore, and they're all just graffiti, disrepaired. She's got some shots of people walking by them on their phone, somebody charging their mobile in a phone box, you know, just. Yeah, I, I don't really know what's going to happen to them, to be honest, because I feel like in terms of London, I don't think they'll ever want to get rid of the red phone boxes because that's kind of like an iconic tourist attraction. Yeah, but there's so many, that's it, you know, the red phone boxes are already few and far between. There's so many of these, you know, the the ones that are barely even sheltered just around the place. And, I'm, you know, I've been seeing them for years, getting more and more overgrown. And there's one that, you know, actually springs to mind, which is a really lovely one. It's right next to... It's under an old street lamp, so it's still got the yellow phosphorescent lighting on it. And it's been all overgrown with ivy. So it's like this lovely canopy of ivy over it. Lovely little spaces, about the smallest space you could have, I guess, a phone box. Yeah. Part of me thought they can't really get rid of them because you kind of do need them. Say, for whatever reason, your phone did die, you might need to call someone, but... I don't even know if half of them work anymore. They look like they're literally untouched. And obviously people tend to smash them in or just... Yeah, but again, maybe they maybe they don't smash them in as much anymore because maybe they're becoming invisible, you know. Maybe they're the same as the Archer Stone. They're just things that are relics of the past that people just walk past. I know that when I was a kid, people used to, you know, always smash phone boxes up, but I'm just thinking about it now. I don't feel like I see kind of glass on the floor around them and all the rest of it nearly as much as you used to because I think people just ignore them. Yeah, no, you're probably right, actually. I suppose I said that because there's a particular phone box coming to mind to me that I used to walk past all the time and it had its glass smashed in and it was clearly a spot where people were drinking and stuff because there's always cans in it and what have you. So, But I suppose actually, yeah, there wasn't like fresh glass smashed on the floor. It's just been left that way for however long. Yeah, yeah. But I have to say with your book, I really did love that you got people from all different areas, you know, not just London, because I know it isn't a psychogeography book as such, but obviously kind of touches that on that area. And it psychogeography, like you say, it's always London, always this same old, same old. Yeah. Although saying that, I do think the term is branching out a little bit more. I don't know if you feel like that. Although that's the sort of traditional meaning of the phrase, I, I feel like people are just sort of associating it with walking and memory and it can be what it wants to some degree. I think so. And I think that might be because it's had a chance to have a bit of a rest. <laughs> you know, people have stopped banging yeah. on about it so much so people can kind of see that, you know, I, I mean, I love the the idea of psychogeography. I think, you know, I'm well into it. That is the thing that I, that I do. But it's just because of those associations that I end up not using the term. You know, David Southwell, again, the, the Huckland guy, he, he calls what he does landscape punk rather than psychogeography, which I think is is cool. Yeah, it can kind of be what you want, I think. They're all sort of under that umbrella term and you can sort of name it what you want. Yeah, and I, I appreciate why, you know, so much of it becomes about London and I, I don't go to London very often and the times when I have gone to London and tried to kind of, you can walk down one street and the the amount of, you know, the amount of plaques everywhere and the amount of, 
things to do with the names of everything. You know, I, I completely understand. It's like, it's such a rich seam of, it's got such a rich seam of history and all the rest of it. I can see why that people can keep going on and on about it because there's plenty of stuff to talk about, but there's plenty of stuff to talk about elsewhere as well. So I just, uh, yeah, I just wanted, you know, another one of the essays in the book, which was, uh, I got Gazelle Amber Valentine, who's the guitarist and singer from the band Jucifer. And I really wanted to get her voice in there because she and her husband, they live a nomadic lifestyle. They've been, they've got no fixed address and they haven't had any fixed address for more than 20 years now they just live in a van and they tour constantly as the band and they record in the van they practice in the van they live in the van and i really wanted to get from her a sense of what it's like not having any roots and her relationship where how her relationship to place is because of that their essay was really like about basically places that they visited where she has got this incredibly strong sense of place just from being somewhere and obviously as a person to me or you who might not travel around that much you go somewhere and it's a novelty anywhere but to somebody who's who's traveling all the time they're gonna know those places that have have touched them and you know there's an amazing thing in there about doing a gig in a diy space in germany and it being a really strange space and then her finding out that it's the factory that used to make the gas ovens for for all the the nazi gassing stuff and like obviously it was just an oven company you know just just mad stuff like that and i think it's it's dead interesting about what you bring to the table yourself about your own ideas and your own sense of where you come from and where you belong and where you don't belong and i just thought it was it was fascinating to get the perspective of somebody who you know doesn't particularly come from or belong anywhere who actually yeah no i definitely like that because yeah like you said i think it's a lot of the time you associate this with roots you're rooted to somewhere you know it but if you're on the move yeah you aren't rooted to anywhere but I don't know if you get that when you do go to like new places or whatever. And obviously recently me moving, we were looking for places to live, different areas. You can weigh up all the pros and cons of why it's good, but you still, you just, you don't get this sense in you. This feels right. This place has a good feeling to me. Despite, even though it's got buses, it's got trains, it's got shops, it's got all these things that on paper are excellent. It's still, there's just, it's not right. Yeah, and that's you know that's especially difficult with when it's um, moving house and you're trying to kind of justify that to another person and you're trying to kind of go oh yeah. I just got just got a feeling that it's not really the right place and you're like well you know where we live now we were looking for a long time because we we needed somewhere to, as more of a like family home from where we were living we literally we looked at a house that's kind of two roads over which I walk past quite often and there is. On paper, no difference between that house and this house. But I know exactly what you mean. We were like, we were quite happy with that house until we saw this one. And then we were like, oh no, it's it's got to be the other one, hasn't it? And from the outside, this is a house that we didn't even want to, couldn't even be bothered to look at because we were like, oh, it looks really boring and, you know, unappealing from outside. But it's not about that. It's about as soon as we walked in, we were like, oh no, this feels like the right place to live. And, you know, I think that, we're we're all operating on that gut instinct more than any of us admit you know what i mean everybody thinks that they're being very rational about things and making these rational decisions and i think a lot of the time you're really you're going with your gut instinct about 
much more than you you give it credit for. I agree with that, yeah. I do find that really interesting because it's just, although we've progressed so far in society, there's still just that weird sense you just get. Nothing can describe it except you. You just know, regardless of weighing up all these pros and cons. I definitely think that's something that, for me, that's important, my gut feeling for a place. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. We'll round it up now. I did just want to ask, are you working on anything else regarding spirits of place or sense of place? And also, you know, if there's anything else you're working on, feel free to plug it. Go ahead. I mean, I'm not working on anything specifically. I I want to do another spirits of place event. That's the thing that's been sort of in the pipeline ever since we did the first one. But the way the first one happened was very organic. And it was a thing where I just felt like it was a thing that, that I had to make happen rather than a thing that I had to do. So I'm sort of waiting for it to for that to happen again. I've got ideas and I've got people who I'd like to be involved and everything, but I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't know when I'm going to have the time. I mean, I would hope that would be maybe next year or maybe the year after, but I don't know. But I mean, the ideas behind the book, the ideas behind the event, I've realized are pretty much my ideas behind everything i do like i say I, me and my wife we, we we co-write comics together and we've been doing that for 16 years now and the stuff i'll do in the comics my input into the comics will quite often be to do with history and folklore and you know all the stuff that i'm interested in it's always been the same stuff i'm interested in since i was a kid and i was going to the giant's grave and i was visiting the calder stones and i was reading the usborne books of the unexplained about ghosts and monsters and all the rest of it and you know i realized that my my interests and everything i've I've really not changed broadly since i was probably about like eight or something i just kind of rounded out those areas of interest a bit more so i think everything i ever write and everything i ever do is broadly to do with place and history and folklore and the interplay of those things but yeah. i mean specifically at the moment i'm just i know i'm just plugging away with with more comics and trying to get a book done but just a, a fiction book yeah just trying to pay the mortgage and um you know <laughs> yeah. keep on. if you did hold that event again would you do it in liverpool again do you think no i don't think i would because it was so site specific. I mean, part of the my initial justification for doing it was you get these cool things happening in, you know, uh, basically I was getting jealous because Treadwell's, the bookshop in London, put on all these cool things and I never get to go to any of them because I never go to London. And I just sort of, I think there's the, the Manchester Gothic event, which runs every year now, which is to do with Manchester University. That's always got amazing stuff on and I never know how to get to it because it's all to do with the university i never know what i can get tickets for i can never get time to get there and all the rest of it so basically i felt like there was all these sort of interesting events going on but there was nothing anywhere near me and there was nothing talking about the stuff that you know that related to me so i wanted to do something that was kind of a cross between a sort of academic conference because i've adapted some mr james some of mr james's ghost stories we've done them as graphic novels and so i've been to a few different mr james events one of which was like a proper academic conference and it was brilliant i really enjoyed it 
but I sort of thought, you know, I go to comic conventions every year as well, and they're a different thing. And I thought, why isn't there something that's kind of halfway between these two things? So that's where I was coming from initially. And I was thinking, if we can have it in Liverpool, there's never anything, there's never anything around here. So yeah, I guess I'd like to do it somewhere else where they don't usually have that sort of thing. Yeah, no, I think that's really great. It always is. It's London. You have to go to London to go to any of these cool things. So I think that's great trying to do it where people might not necessarily be able to get to it. And like you did with the book, this goes on everywhere. It's not just London. London's not like the only place that is to do with this sort of area. No, I mean, it's, it's universal that, you know, that's the, I think that's the wonderful thing that comes out in the book is that it's a cross-cultural, you know, cross-gender, cross-age, you know, everybody is having these experiences. So you can choose different focal points. So yeah, I'd love to choose another another focal point and make it all about that place but yeah wait and see yeah so if people do want to read this book is it available on amazon or where can they get it from it's available on amazon spiritsofplace.com is the place to go um you can download a couple of sample essays on there as well so you can read it before you buy it i think you can even get the like a kindle version of it there as well yeah so that that's the place to go all right brilliant well thanks for chatting with me today it's been really interesting chat oh thank you very much for chatting to me i hope i, hope I haven't waffled on too much no not so there we have it thanks very much for tuning into today's episode and if you'd like to find more out about the podcast you can visit my website which is www.senseofplacepod.com Here you can find out more info on the podcast, get exclusive bonus content and get links to the social media. And of course, I can't end a podcast without sounding like every other podcast out there. But if you enjoyed this, I'd really appreciate if you went onto iTunes and gave it a rating and review. And once again, thanks for listening and I'll speak to you next time.